Jenny Blake had a career at Google that looked like a dream job to the outside world. And maybe it was for a while. But the pressures of the job and feeling stuck started taking their toll. And Jenny said she felt like she was losing her aliveness. So it was hard to talk about because if I tried to speak to anybody outside of the company about feeling restless or not being fulfilled or not feeling like I was a fit for the trajectory I was on, they would just look at me like I was crazy. Anyone would kill to work there or um, suck it up or you're so privileged. I just thought maybe I'm one of those entitled millennials that the media keeps talking about. So Jenny pushed on, but eventually, curled up in the fetal position at the bottom of an office phone booth, she knew something had to change. It's hard to tell if you're bored or burnt out or languishing or something else. And ever notice how your inner critic tries discrediting your inner knowing? Suck it up. You're privileged. What's wrong with you? Nowadays, Jenny is a podcaster and is the author of three award-winning books, including Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is Your Next One. In today's episode, Jenny challenges that knee-jerk reaction, is it me, when we find ourselves feeling stuck and meh at work. Maybe it is you, but in a way you never considered. Maybe your high net growth. Before we dive in, welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. This is a show for anyone whose life looks shiny and successful on the outside, but inside you're secretly exhausted, maybe even burnt out, and you're wondering if any title or impressive accolade will ever make you feel good enough. I see you because I've been there too, and I'm so glad you're here. I drop us right into today's conversation where Jenny shares her early experience at Google. My very first job, I took a leave of absence from university to work at a startup where I was the first employee as it grew to 30 people. And this was in my hometown where I had gone to middle school, high school in Palo Alto. And when I hit a growth plateau there, I was young. I was 19 at the time. I didn't know how to communicate that to my boss or to the founder of the company, who was this very intimidating Stanford economics professor. So instead of really having any sort of career conversation, our first was our last, which is when I walked into his office with a, I remember a cup of Starbucks coffee shaking in my hands. And I just said, I, I, this is my two weeks notice. And he just said, okay, then pack your things and be out by Friday. So it was also this very abrupt departure. One of my many hats that I wore at that startup was managing our Google AdWords accounts. In addition to ordering toilet paper and doing office management, I was doing a little bit of everything. So I had already been interviewing for Google in my car on lunch breaks, and I have a feeling they knew, but that was a case where when I couldn't see my growth continuing, I felt like it was time to do something new. I ended up after a four or five month interview process, I got the job at Google on the training team. I started in 2006 when there were 6,000 employees at the company, and I was there for five and a half years as it grew to 36,000. And one thing I noticed was that all these new hires I was training, Google had been hiring the best and the brightest, but in those early days, didn't really have a lot of career development programs to focus on how do you keep them. So people would come whispering to me in the hallways, much like I felt at the startup saying, Jenny, I'm bored. I'm getting restless and I don't know what to do. And two and a half years into my tenure at the company, I felt the same way. I had become a people manager really early, actually in 2008 and 
I was younger than my new reportees and I was had been at the company for less time than them. So it was a rocky transition as it was. And then the director of the team who was new asked us to let half of the team go. And I just sobbed in his office. And I remember thinking, I'm not cut out for this. And I didn't want to be a people manager anymore. And thankfully, I was able to pivot internally to a newly forming career development team. But I kept feeling like there was something wrong with me, that here I was at the Disneyland of companies, and I should be nothing but 100% fulfilled and 100% grateful 100% of the time. So it was hard to talk about because if I tried to speak to anybody outside of the company about feeling restless or not being fulfilled or not feeling like I was a fit for the trajectory I was on, they would, you know, just look at me like I was crazy. Anyone would kill to work there or um, suck it up or you're so privileged. I just thought maybe I'm one of those entitled millennials that the media keeps talking about. In the next part of the conversation, I want to draw your attention to how Jenny's body sent up red flags as responses to her feelings of stuckness and stress, and notice how her inner critic talked her out of it. This tension between the mind and body is something I see a lot of with my coaching clients whose bodies are talking, but it's inconvenient to hear. See if any of this sounds familiar. Well, I know you talk a lot about themes of burnout and people-pleasing and even overachieving perfectionism, like these were all themes that were operating mostly unconsciously to me at that time. So for starters, when I hit a growth plateau, I didn't even have the language plateau. Really the only language that existed was midlife crisis or quarter life crisis. And that's part of what inspired me eventually to write Pivot because I wanted to give us some judgment neutral language around career change, especially for people who I call high net growth where money is important, but it's not everything. But before that, there was no language to describe it. So I made myself the problem. You know, I'm one that I had started reading personal development books early. I went to coach training in 2008 when I was in my early 20s. So most of my fellow coach training attendees were kind of laughing at me, making comments like, what are you here? What are you doing being a life coach? What do you know about life? But I couldn't believe that some of my favorite books and principles and ways of learning to be in the world, there was a whole profession dedicated to these types of big, expansive questions. And it was partly to coach myself out of that stuck feeling. But I just remember one of the teachers at coach training said to me, well, you're really smart. So your inner critic is too. Like You have a vicious inner critic. And that comment was somewhat helpful but it also just made me feel even worse about myself. So now I was kind of at war with a part of myself being super critical, assuming the problem is me and just feeling like I was too sensitive for my own life, for this job, for this fast paced culture. Maybe I just wasn't cut out to be fulfilled because here I was at the dream job and I kept hitting these different roadblocks. Now, some of that is really normal in anybody's career, in any fast-growing company, uh, certainly in a you know, center of the technology world, there are a lot of really smart people. So even if no one person is trying to create a culture of burnout, it is very easy to just tip into that, especially if, as I did not have in those early days, if you don't have strong boundaries. I just was letting work spill over into all these different aspects of my life. And I did have health issues the entire time that I was working there, that I didn't really connect the dots until after I left and they started to clear up. 
So whether that was hyperthyroidism, it's called Graves disease, whether it was my asthma, whether it was acne, I had all these markers of stress signals that my body was trying to give me that maybe the way I was working wasn't quite working, but I didn't know how to listen to them. And whenever I would have a doctor, like the dermatologist, I remember her saying, well, sometimes, you know, breakouts are a result of stress. Can you lower your stress? And I, I laughed. I wanted to laugh like short of quitting my job. No, I didn't know how to do that. And I guess this was also before the wave of mindfulness took over the mainstream. But that was some of my self-talk was just really not knowing how to get out of the situation and kind of making it my fault, assuming it was my fault, while also trying to please everybody around me and have really strong performance reviews. And just thinking, you know, this is a great job and I'm well compensated for this job. There's nothing to complain about. I just knew that part of me was losing that sense of aliveness and really more often stuck in kind of meetings and emails than doing the things that I felt I was uniquely suited to do, like designing training programs or facilitating them or building things from scratch, which thankfully I was able to do in my second half of my time there before I ultimately left. My brick wall moment came during a day of back-to-back meetings. Thankfully, Google did reimburse me for coach training and I was doing some one-on-one coaching as part of my role. And I remember that I went into the phone booth for my next call and I almost collapsed. So I just curled in the, I curled in the fetal position on the floor of that phone room and was just trying to steady myself from not fainting or I don't know what was wrong with me. I was probably dehydrated looking back, but I didn't even have the strength to pick up the phone, to reach up to the desk above me, pick up the phone, which we still actually had in the offices at that time and cancel my next call. And ultimately a friend came and walked me to the parking lot and I went home early that day. But that was just one of so many kind of brick wall moments, feelings of burnout, Because in parallel to a very intense role at Google, I had also set up my own and first website in 2005 called Life After College that turned into a blog in 2007, 2008, and I got a book deal in 2010. So this is all concurrent to working at Google. I was managing a blog, posting twice a week, answering emails, trying to write a book, and the book would ultimately come out in 2011, which is when I asked for a sabbatical to go on leave and really do a proper book launch. And I thought that I was going to come back. I had every intention of coming back. But I remember before the sabbatical started, (laughs) I was going to yoga teacher training, a residential training in Santa Barbara, while having to send the final, final, final edits to the book to the printer. And I just thought there's something not right here. Like here I am at this spiritual retreat center in Santa Barbara doing yoga teacher training, I don't know why, maybe as my own way of kind of stepping out of the corporate environment for a few weeks. And yet still, I was the only one there on deadline, needing to finish the edits on my first book, which felt like a tremendous amount of pressure, not to mention this global drop-in career coaching program that I had co-created and that was about to launch as soon as I got back to work. So it was just another brick wall moment of what am I doing? Like, No one person can juggle all of this and expect not to burn out. So what I thought was just going to be a three-month sabbatical ended up very quickly showing me, especially because 
almost as soon as the sabbatical started, I hit a point of total exhaustion again. And I was now launching my first book while feeling totally burnt out already and not even starting the 10 city book tour that I had arranged for myself. And I just realized I can't do this to myself anymore. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to my new book and budding what could be a business. I didn't know if I was qualified to run a business on my own at that time, but nonetheless, that was an option. And it didn't feel fair to even attempt to juggle all of that and go back to my job. It wouldn't be fair to Google. It wouldn't be fair to my team. So I knew pretty quickly as soon as that sabbatical started that something would have to give. And I knew that I would forever regret not trying to go all in on myself and my own business at least once in my life. And I had six months of savings. I thought if if I don't earn a dime through self-employment, I'll find another job. But for the first time, I was willing to try. In a 2021 New York Times article, Adam Grant described languishing as this sense of feeling stuck and empty about your life. He says, and I quote, it feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield, unquote. Sound familiar? He goes on to discuss languishing in his new book as well, called Hidden Potential, which is definitely worth a read. So your tank is nearing empty, you've lost your mojo, which disrupts your focus and dulls your motivation. So it becomes a catch-22. You know you need to do something, but you doubt whether it'll have any impact. If you're nodding, Jenny's going to mess with your thinking about feeling in that stuck place. Maybe it's not you and your not-enoughness. Maybe your high net growth and you've stagnated. Maybe the things you should want from a career, and I'm air quoting here, the money, the promotions, maybe they don't impress you much. Let's dive back in. We've all heard the term high net worth individual. These are people who've accumulated a lot of financial resources in their lifetime. I know it's a theme you've talked about and you've worked in those worlds before. When I wrote Pivot, I was writing it for people who I describe as high net growth. Whereas I mentioned earlier, money is important, but it's not everything. Actually, what's equally important is that they ask themselves, am I learning? Am I growing? And ultimately, am I making an impact? I started working on the book for Pivot, the proposal in 2013, and it came out in 2016 at a time where no one was really using the phrase career pivot. I, my thesis was that either something was wrong with me, as I mentioned, or something about the economy was accelerating and we were going to be job hopping more frequently. We were going to be hitting these pivot points or plateaus more often than previous generations. And the data had already started to show that when I wrote Pivot, the average employee tenure, at least in the States was four to five years. Now I bet it's half of that, certainly after the pandemic. And so my driving question was, how can people be as agile as startups? Eric Reese had written The Lean Startup and Pivot was a term that he popularized, but for the business world. So I was wondering, you know, what does it look like? If you're high net growth, then there is nothing wrong with you if you hit a plateau or a pivot point more often than your peers who may be motivated by different things. And that's certainly what I saw play out in the Google environment. And when I gave myself a little more credit, you mentioned the self-talk, maybe there wasn't something wrong with me. Maybe I wasn't just one of these entitled millennials. Maybe I was just high net growth that when I hit a growth plateau and I, and I stagnated, 
It's that feeling of boredom. You're drained by the work. You're starting to dread going to work. You Like I was pushing pixels around a PowerPoint strategy deck for five months for a meeting that barely lasted 15 minutes with our leadership team. And that's because at that time I had a manager who had come from, who knows, the fancy Ivy League MBA. And she thought that's what we needed to spend our time on. And that was driving me crazy doing work like that. That felt so utterly meaningless and so out of my zone of even competence. I I just, I felt like I was crawling out of my skin. And so when I started to adapt some of this startup language for people, I realized that, okay, it makes sense. If you're coming from, I, you know, these Ivy League undergrads, and then they're being put into customer support roles, answering emails or answering the 800 phone line, of course, they're going to get bored in a year. And there's nothing wrong with that. If we can speak about that and acknowledge that these plateaus or pivot points will come more often if you're high net growth or high net impact, then they're not a problem. And it doesn't mean that you can solve them right away, but that at least we can discuss, okay, how do we get back from, in a diagram called the riskometer, I say we have a comfort zone, we have a stagnation zone, a stretch zone, and a panic zone. So if you're tipping into stagnation, the question is, how can I take on new projects that might stretch me? Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, in his seminal book on flow, he talks about an access of just enough challenge and just enough skill to meet that challenge. So this type of language and these types of levers, I realized, you know, they can help us more methodically map what's next rather than that feeling of flailing or self-blame, the shame that can surround hitting these plateaus that actually it's a totally normal part of the process. And often, instead of focusing on so much on what's not working, we can really benefit by doubling down on what is. I think back to my investment banking days, or even to the early days of running two businesses at once, once I'd left finance. And in both cases, I was definitely muddling through my days, looking at my life through a foggy windshield. Was I looking for a new project to light me up? Hell no. I was looking for a dark room to lay in where somebody would feed me warm bread and rub nice smelling lotions on my body. (laughs) There were just too many moving pieces in my life to keep juggling back then. Challenging colleagues, two kids under the age of five, not to mention my impossibly high standards for myself. I didn't have the language to describe burnout properly back then, to myself or to my doctors at the time. I was just bone tired. That's all I knew. So the International Classification of Diseases has since defined burnout as, and I quote, a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It's characterized into three dimensions. Number one, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Tick. Number two, increased mental distance from one's job or feeling negativism or cynicism. Tick. And number three, reduced professional efficacy. Now, this one can be tricky because a lot of the time that languishing feeling and that exhaustion can happen, but you're still knocking it out of the park at work. So it's complicated, right? I know now that I was well beyond languishing. It was just not a foggy windshield. I was actually severely burnt out, but holding on by my fingernails until I wasn't. It's complicated, as I said. It's hard to distinguish between being burnt out or languishing or stagnating or being bored. This is why it's especially important to really listen to yourself 
And I hope that this conversation with Jenny will make you feel less alone if your mental windshield is foggy or worse. Here's what Jenny has to say when I ask about someone flailing from sheer workload who is feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. I think what you're addressing there is an issue of capacity. And so there's, you're right that there's kind of mental, spiritual, emotional challenge in a way that we feel is aligned with who we are, our biggest strengths, the impact we're trying to have, who we see ourselves becoming. Those types of challenges, most likely, although I won't speak for everybody, are energizing. They're like a magnet pulling you forward. But where that tips into a capacity challenge of, as we all confront Sisyphean email systems, the brick wall of meetings that are back to back to back all day, sometimes overlapping if it's executives in a company, you know, they're often double booked and picking between things. They are eating while walking, or I would always carry my laptop in the crook of my elbow, working while in the elevator on the route. There's just no white space. There is no margin. There is no buffer. That to me is more of a capacity issue than true, let's say, intellectual challenge. That's the challenge of us not being machines and yet being asked to function that way in increasingly global companies that became 24-7. Once email was introduced, once remote work really got full swing with the pandemic, it was just, we were always on. And even working from home the few years, if you were fortunate to be able to work from home during the pandemic, all of a sudden there was no separation now. I mean, for those of us running our own businesses, like for me, I've been working from home for over 12 years and I've learned, I only do work on my laptop. I don't do any entertainment. I don't mess around. And when my work is done, I close the laptop and I can't stand to look at it. So I've had people get mad at me that I won't just open my laptop so we could watch a Netflix show or something. I refuse. It's just, I won't do it. But I think that the world kind of, or at least the knowledge worker world had to learn how to create some separation. And just the fact that not only do we have our work inbox now, we have a personal inbox. And then no matter how many social media accounts, they're always giving you a new inbox. So now there's a LinkedIn inbox. And if you're on X or Instagram or Facebook, it's just way more than any one person can handle. And who wouldn't burn out from that? I mean, it's like, I don't know. I just feel that we're not well set up physiologically with the way that this minimum 40 hour work week is structured. If you have a full-time job and you may or may not have a degree of time autonomy. Again, I think a lot of that did open up in the last few years, but it created new challenges. So I just think that we're all rewriting the rules of how to do this and how to do it in a sustainable way. And that no one really has the precise answers. If you're not sure what your next steps are, here's what Jenny recommends that you start with. I would start with an energy audit, keeping a piece of paper by your desk. It could be digital, but I'm a big fan of writing things down by hand as well, where you have three columns, draining, meh, and energizing. And as you go through the weeks, even as you look ahead to what's on your calendar, what's on your to-do list, who you're meeting with, keep, keep notes, like what drains your energy, what's neutral and what energizes you, what gives you energy. I even heard one podcaster say that at the end of every day, he colors the calendar entries that day 
red if they drained him, orange if they were neutral, and green if they gave him energy. So he could look backward on his calendar and actually see the data about his own energy. And so I think just taking more of an inventory, because a lot of times when we feel stuck, especially if we're tired and approaching burnout, we just don't feel very resourceful. It's easier to complain and just vent to friends and family. And usually they're happy to indulge us. And you know, Mandy, from being a coach as well, that they, you know, a lot of friends and family just aren't trained to ask those big, powerful questions and to say, well, what does success look like? Or what would energize you? What does your ideal day look like? And yet those are some of the questions that even if you don't know the answers just yet, you know what burnout feels like or what stagnation feels like, and you're living it every day. So then the question becomes of the scope of work that you're responsible for. What is energizing you? What is working? Even if it's just 5% or 10%. And what are you curious about? What would you love to become an expert at? What would you love to win an award for or become known for, say, a year from now? And sometimes, especially the higher up somebody gets in a corporate environment, there is not always a lot of room to go or grow in terms of title and promotion. There are certain roles that just top out. Like there's only one CEO. And if you don't want to be a CEO, you're not on track to become the CEO. A lot of times people hit a very real ceiling that you are at the highest level you can achieve for this role in this organization. So then that's okay too. I also don't think that we need to obsess about promotion 24 seven to the point of making ourselves miserable. Sometimes you reach a point where the salary is okay. It's abundant. It's taken care of. And then the question becomes, what does project-based purpose look like? How could you take on a project that's interesting, that's intrinsically rewarding, that connects you to interesting people? So to give you an example of this, when I first joined Google, I asked for a little bit of budget to create a training team book club. And at that time, maybe in today's environment, the answer would be no, especially because they wouldn't be able to say yes to every single employee buying a book every month. But at that time, I got a small little yes. We would all read the same business book. Our first one was Good to Great by Jim Collins. And then every now and then we'd get lucky and be able to invite the author in for lunch. It disbanded eventually after, who knows, six months. And I didn't think anything else of it. A few years later, when the talks at Google team was at risk of falling apart because it had been entirely volunteer-based up to that point, they turned to me and they said, Jenny, you love books. And because I was on that newly formed career development team, they, they were kind of my manager raised their hand to say, well, we'll step in. We'll put somebody in as an interim lead to help figure out this program and see if we can keep it at Google. And so for eight months, I led the authors at Google team and I helped create a full-time role. Not that I felt, but that we put someone into. And that happened right before I left the company. And the program is still around and thriving to this day. But that was never my full-time role. It was never my job on paper. It did tap into something I was passionate about, which was books and authors And many of the authors that we brought in to speak during that time where I was the interim lead, I am still in touch with and good friends with to this day, almost 15 years later. So that's an example of a project that just had had nothing to do with my full-time role per se. I mean, it was related and yet was so incredibly rewarding and something that I'm really proud of and that I have these long-lasting relationships from. So I think it's just giving ourselves permission to loosen the rules a little bit about what success does look like and about not taking an all or nothing approach 
to finding new, even small resonant opportunities. I want to home in on something Jenny just said, loosening the rules of what success looks like. Let's go deeper into that. Listen out for her secret experiment. There's a concept I wrote about in my third and newest book, Free Time, that asks, are you sailing the sea of shiny shoulds? We know about shoulds, and I know you've covered them on your show, but shiny shoulds are the ones that seem good. Like we should be chasing these things. Um, One of them is you should be on social media or you should be on LinkedIn. It's good for your career. You know, you should build your great resume in the sky and make sure that you have no gaps. And, you know, we're kind of like pleasing the resume gods. But another should is I should get promoted at a certain pace. Like that's a universally good thing. And I remember the moment that I realized, talk about in this case, maybe it wasn't a brick wall. It was like freedom from the brick wall. When I realized that I had been so obsessed with promotion, because that was kind of the culture that I was in. I just thought this is part of my burnout is that I'm on this, the the treadmill is three ticks faster than I can keep up with. And I'm obsessing, is this the quarter I'm going to get promoted? How about this one? How about this one? How's my performance? Just obsessing. And one day I realized I don't care if I ever get promoted again here. And I was not at that high a level. (laughs) I was probably a level four. And at that time, you would start at Google at a level two. I don't even know. I'm sure there was a one, but I didn't. Maybe that's contractors. In any case, I was not at very high of a level, but I realized I didn't care anymore to keep climbing. At that time, I worked under Sheryl Sandberg's part of the organization. And as I looked to her and I looked to her role, we were all awed by her, how eloquent she would speak, how brilliant she seemed. She was such a great mentor to so many people. But I realized I don't want her job. I don't want to be climbing the ranks of management. I'm not good at people management. I'm okay at it. I really loved the coaching aspect, but I'm really not good at what my friend Charlie Gilkey calls the social overhead of managing people and managing a team. And so when I gave myself permission to never get promoted again at the company, I actually thought to myself, well, then maybe they're going to find you out and fire you. And then I thought, okay, well, it would take them three months to put me on a performance plan. I would have three months. And if I didn't shape up, they could probably fire me three months after that. So I kind of felt like, okay, now the clock was ticking, but let's see how it goes. I was willing at this point to run an experiment to see if it could just help me reduce that feeling of overwhelm. So it was my little secret that I no longer cared about getting promotion, getting promoted. And I also resolved to kind of stop killing myself for the job. Like I was going to draw firmer boundaries and I was going to do a great job, but I wasn't going to do that to the point of just destroying my health. Also, I thought maybe, maybe I'll lose favor in terms of my performance reviews, but the next performance review I had, I still exceeded expectations. The difference was, was that I was so much calmer in how I achieved my work for those three to six months. They had no clue. Like nobody knew that this internal shift had happened, but I was so much happier. I was so much more relaxed. They didn't end up putting me on a performance plan or firing me. I ended up leaving before any of that could happen, but it's like nobody even noticed. I just had so much more peace in my heart because I realized I don't need to care so much about this thing that seems like. I should. It was as if my identity 
in that moment with that realization, my identity was free, set free from just, I am a Googler or I am a high performing Googler, or I am a person moving up the ranks at Google. It was like, I just, my identity was set free. I, I am not my job. I had a lot of things going for me on the side, like my side hustle, as I mentioned in my book and my blog and the connections and friendships that I was making outside of work. And I, to this day, I really did love my time at Google. And when you work for a big fancy brand name company like that, I often talk about, you know, it's comfortable under the shade of the big corporate tree. It's really comfortable. And there's a lot of halo effects that you get being associated with such a big fancy brand. Like, oh, when I would introduce myself and say, I work at Google, it was like, I would just disappear in that conversation. People say, what's that like? Or can you put in my resume? Or even if I said I left Google, well, what was that like? Can you tell us more? And and here we are talking about it still, you know, almost 13 years later, and it's no problem. I, I came back around to realize, okay, it's part of my story, but it's not who I am. And I think the harder thing for me, identity-wise and inner talk-wise, was developing a sense of self that I did have value even without Google. And that took years. And it, it I was afraid to leave because I was afraid if I left, I would lose this fancy thing that everybody seems so compelled by. Maybe people wouldn't want to be my friends in the author world anymore because I couldn't bring them into Google to speak. And funnily enough, Google ended up being a long-term corporate client. I still do keynotes. And I always love going back and doing events with different Google teams because I get them and vice versa. And I understand the environment so well. But it just took time to try to figure out who I was if I wasn't leaning on that as a core part of my identity. Jenny's point about untangling her sense of self from her job is a theme we have delved into many, many times in this podcast. So many guests have felt like their identity dissolved into a goo after leaving the cachet of a big brand or a shiny job title, the way a caterpillar turns into this unidentifiable soup before becoming a butterfly. Before we close, I asked Jenny if there was a goo zone in her life after leaving Google. Oh yeah, well, there's definitely a goo state as my friend Penny Pierce and I call it. And there's also a time to just physically recover from working in that fast pace of an environment. After I left, I really didn't want to do much after the book tour settled down. And I remember thinking, is this me? Am I just a lump that wants to sit on the couch at 7 a.m. and watch TV all day? No, I just needed to recover from the intense environment and also learn how to set my own schedule. And I am lucky that I pivoted into self-employment where I could set my own schedule. And now I only work 20, max 25 hours a week because my health is important to me and reading in the morning and taking my dog out for a walk. And I feel like, honestly, for human thriving, probably 40 hours a week is too much, but we don't all have a say in that. So I think the identity piece just comes slowly over time. And I've always loved the Roka quote that a new thing has entered upon you. You don't yet know what it is. And it just feels like sadness, but it's that there's a new thing and it's reveals itself slowly over time. And so, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> the process always takes me twice as long, if not three or four times as long as I want it to, <laughs> as I feel like it should I just keep, 
I don't know if my liminal periods are more pronounced or if we all have them for years at a time, but um, I don't think there is any one process. It's just trying not to rush the process. At the end of every episode, I ask the guest to leave a brick of wisdom, something that they feel that they want to leave you with, some piece of wisdom or advice. And here's what Jenny's got for you. Give yourself permission to trust your intuition. I love the Oprah line that your life is always speaking to you. Are you listening? And I do think that our life, it it whispers at first. They are subtle. And you said it right at the start, Mandy, that sometimes that intuitive hit is trying to be heard, but we don't want to admit it because we would need to change too many things if we did, or we don't want to listen. But I would just say, give yourself permission to at least hear what your intuition is trying to say, even if you don't know what you would do about it. And something that I've always taken comfort in, Penny Pierce, who I mentioned, she says intuition works on a need-to-know basis. It will come in at the moment you need it and not a moment sooner. So also just trust that when you're looking for guidance, when you need that guidance, when you need the next clue, it will show up right in perfect timing. There is so much good stuff in this episode, and I hope it's got you thinking about whether your high net growth and inspired you to think about project-based purpose. And you don't necessarily have to leave a job if you're languishing. It can also look like getting yourself out of the red energetically and then getting curious with your energy audit. I love that part of this episode. So could you loosen the rules of success? Are you topped out and maybe promotion doesn't excite you anymore? Your energy audit will help you to home in on where the juice might exist in your current role or company or not. If you want more Jenny Blake in your life and who doesn't, what can you do? You can find everything that I'm publishing online across all the books and podcasts at substack.com slash at Jenny Blake. In addition to her books, she also runs a podcast called Pivot, and I was lucky enough to be a guest on her show. I'll link that episode in the show notes if you want to hear more of the two of us in conversation. So two things before you leave today. Who do you know who needs this episode in their headphones right away? Thank you so much for sharing. And before you head back into your day, could you please click the follow button for Enough the Podcast wherever you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? It ensures that you never miss an episode and it helps me to keep getting the show out there in more headphones of people who need it. Thanks so much for listening and let's do this all again next month.